Yeah, marvellous. What I'm really giving you today is uh, some edited highlights uh, from two uh, papers that I published, which you can uh, find on the internet uh, for free, uh, from the Evangelical Philosophy uh, Society. Um, the first is a paper called The Design Inference from Specified Complexity Defended by Scholars Outside the Intelligent Design Movement. Uh, and that was an article that was published in the philosophy journal Philosophia Christi. And the second paper is called Atheists Against Darwinism, uh, which is published uh, on the same website, although it wasn't an article in the journal. But the two papers go together very nicely and form uh, base, the basis of part one and then part two of my talk. Um, let me first set up what I, what I conceive intelligent design theory uh, as the theory of origins in particular as a being, that it makes three uh, core claims, such that if you agreed with all three of these claims, you would count yourself as a member of the sort of ID camp, as it were, that broad tent position. And this, uh, these three claims, I, I think, go in this order quite nicely. You could say... It's the view that empirical evidence warrants, justifies, a scientific design inference using reliable design detection criteria. Now, the second of those claims, that, that making a design inference using empirical evidence that goes through some reliable criteria is a scientific thing to do, that's the least important of the three claims as the atheist philosopher Thomas Nagel says, a purely uh, semantic classification of a hypothesis or its denial as belonging or not to science is of limited interest to someone who wants to know whether the hypothesis is true or not. Because, of course, uh, an argument, a hypothesis, can be true without being scientific. And actually, I would argue that if it turned out that this hypothesis was true, you're going to face a difficult choice if you want, on the one hand, to say, well, it's true, but it's not science. Let's start giving lots more money to the philosophy department in order to understand the empirical world. Or should we shift our definition of what we mean by the field of science slightly? Um, so I think clearly the more important issues are, are there reliable design detection criteria and is there anything in the fabric of nature that goes through those criteria? One of the most uh, uh, well-known of the criteria, although there are others advanced by the community, uh, is something known as CSI. Uh, that's not crime scene investigation, like the American TV series, uh, but complex specified information. And the argument here runs very simply like this. Premise one, specified complexity reliably points to intelligent design. Premise two, at least one aspect of nature exhibits specified complexity. Conclusion that necessarily follows, therefore, at least one aspect of nature reliably points to intelligent design. So you see the, the logically valid structure of the argument being made there from that particular criteria. Uh, let me give you a very uh, quick, uh, kind of concrete, kind of uh, working understanding of that kind of criteria of CSI. If you were playing the game Scrabble and you have these uh, letters that you're drawing sight unseen at random out of a, a Scrabble bag, 
uh, and you drew this sequence of letters. It's quite a long sequence of letters, uh, but it's, it's nonsense. Uh, it's complex. It's an unlikely sequence of letters. It is, after all, only one sequence of letters of that length out of a larger group of possible sequences of that length. So it's unlikely. But it's not specified, and I'll get into that a little bit later. You come into a room, you see that on a table, you could very easily get away with, without saying, ah, an intelligent agent must have arranged those letters in that order. Of course, the intelligent agent might have arranged them in that order, but you couldn't tell it just by looking at that string of letters. On the other hand, if you're playing Scrabble, you might just draw out the letters D, O, G, and go, oh, look, I've made a short English word at random. Now, that word is specified, that is, it, it matches an independently given pattern that isn't one that you've just read off the event that you're looking at itself. But it's not complex, it's not very unlikely that you would form such a pattern in playing Scrabble. Again, if you walked into a room and saw those letters on the table, you could very easily avoid uh, the hypothesis that design must be behind that sequence. If you walk into a room and saw Scrabble letters spelling out this sentence from Plato's book, The Laws, where Plato says, all things do become, have become, and will become, some by nature, some by art, design, and some by chance. Well, then I think you'd be pretty abstruse if you looked at that sequence and said, oh, it didn't come about by design. Because this sequence is both complex and specified, and clearly the product of design, of art. And it's the conjunction of both of these factors that is used as a criteria for design detection. So let's get into a little bit more of what the atheists have to say about this kind of approach, or at least some atheists. This is by no means, of course, representing all atheists as agreeing with the people that I'm quoting. Uh, Carl Sagan, uh, astronomer, in his book The Demon Haunted World, uh, gives this uh, illustration. He says there was a celebrated eggplant that closely resembled Richard M. Nixon, the uh, former president of the U.S., what shall we deduce from this fact? Divine or extraterrestrial intervention? Republican meddling in eggplant genetics? No, we recognise that there are a large number of eggplants in the world, and that, given enough of them, sooner or later we'll come across one that looks like a human face, even a very particular human face. So... Sagan's argument for rejecting a design inference from the eggplant implicitly accepts that if the eggplant exhibited a specification at a sufficient level of complexity, unlikeliness, then the design inference would have been justified. Because he's saying it's not justified in this instance because it's not unlikely enough. And probably, I imagine as well, that the specification wasn't particularly tight, may have vaguely looked like Nixon. Similarly, Richard Dawkins, in his book Climbing Mount Improbable, uh, uses uh, an illustration of this uh, hill. That you can see the shadow here uh, kind of looks a little bit like the face of uh, Kennedy, John Kennedy. And he describes a distinction, Dawkins, between uh, objects that are clearly designed and objects that are not clearly designed, but which superficially look as if they might be designed. Objects which he calls designoid. 
And Dawkins illustrates this concept with this hillside, uh, which, look from the right direction, he says, uh, you can see a slight resemblance to either John or Robert Kennedy, but some don't see it, and it's certainly easy to believe that the resemblance is accidental. And he contrasts that Kennedy-esque hillside with Mount Rushmore in America, uh, where he says uh, that the heads on Mount Rushmore are, quote, are obviously not accidental. They have design written all over them. So Dawkins, first of all, I think it's significant to see, he admits that um, intelligence is capable of outperforming, if you like, the design-producing resources of nature in such a way as to leave empirical indicators of its activity. He's implicitly admitting that there. And he goes on to say that, well, a rock can weather into the shape of a nose seen from a certain vantage point, but uh, Mount Rushmore, on the other hand, is clearly not designoid. Its foreheads are clearly designed, he says. Uh, and I've interjected some of the terminology into his quote here where he's implicitly using a specified complexity argument. He says, the sheer number of details, i.e. the amount of complexity, in which the Mount Rushmore faces resemble the real things, i.e. that complexity fits for independently given specifications, is too great to have come about by chance. In terms of possibility, he says, sure, the weather could have done the same job, but of all the possible ways of weathering a mountain, uh, only a tiny minority, complexity, would be uh, speaking likenesses of any four particular human beings, specification. Hence, even if we didn't know the history of Mount Rushmore, we'd estimate the odds against its four heads being carved by accidental weathering as astronomically high. Or similarly, in The Blind Watchmaker, he makes an analogy with a safe, finding a, a safe with a combination lock, and the safe is open. Of all the unique and with hindsight equally improbable positions of the combination lock, complexity, only one opens the lock, specification. The uniqueness of this arrangement that opens the safe has nothing to do with hindsight. It's specified uh, in advance, says Dawkins. Uh, and he thinks that obviously the best explanation of finding an open safe isn't that someone got lucky trying to fiddle with it, Maybe they did, it's a possible explanation, but the best explanation is surely someone knew the combination to open the safe. In an article in Free Inquiry magazine, uh, Dawkins was even more explicit about this. Um, very interesting article to track down in Free Inquiry magazine. He says, specified complexity takes care of the sensible point that any particular rubbish heap is improbable. Any arrangement of any old bits is improbable with hindsight in the unique disposition of its parts. A part of detached uh, watch parts tossed in a box is, with hindsight, as improbable as a fully functioning, genuinely complicated watch. He's making a distinction between two different types of complexity here. Uh, the improbability of them tossed in a box and the improbability of them being together. Uh, what is specified about a watch, the particular arrangement that is a watch, is that it's improbable in the spe specific direction of telling the time, he says. Uh, so he's kind of endorsing, I think, fairly explicitly here, the idea of specified complexity and saying you can't just object to it by saying, oh, well, there's nothing to explain there because any particular arrangement of all of those bits 
would have an equal improbability. It would be just one particular arrangement out of all of the possible arrangements, like the Scrabble. And he even mentions uh, uh, the work of Behe and Dembski. He says, correctly pose the problem of specified complexity as something that needs explaining. Uh, very briefly as well, uh, Massimo Pigliucci uh, says something very similar about uh, Behe's uh, concept of irreducible complexity, uh, which design theorist William Dembski uh, and Behe agrees with him on this, will argue is a, a particular subcategory of specified complexity. And uh, Pigliucci says, Behe does have a point concerning irreducible complexity. Irreducible complexity is indeed a hallmark of intelligent design. But of course, Pigliucci isn't a design theorist because he's you know, very eager to go on and say there is no evidence so far of irreducible complexity in living, or- living organisms. So he thinks there's no evidence, but he thinks that the argument, at least, is a valid one. And also the issue there, for, for Pigliucci, he's saying the issue really is what's the empirical evidence? And at least, at least that issue is clearly something that falls under the remit of scientific investigation. Uh, so that's really talking about the, the core claims of ID and uh, the structure of one of the arguments, the argumentative structure, and one of the criterion that are advanced and showing that some atheists um, both implicitly and explicitly endorse that criterion and the validity of that kind of argument. Now moving on to part two, which is kind of the topics of the second paper that I mentioned. Uh, Philip Johnson's uh, wedge strategy, as it's been called. Uh, Johnson, uh, coming from a legal background, uh, rather than a scientific one, or indeed a philosophical one, uh, is not always as careful with his uh, terminology as uh, I would like as a philosopher, but I think he does uh, make a significant point that does get to the heart of the issue here. And he says, the most important crack in the modernist log this kind of analogy that he's using, is the difference between two distinct definitions of science. On the one hand, monists say that science is impartial fact-finding, the objective and unprejudiced weighing of evidence. On the other hand, modernists also identify science with naturalistic philosophy, in, in some sense. In that case, science is committed to finding and endorsing naturalistic explanations for every phenomena regardless of the facts. This kind of science is not free of prejudice. On the contrary, it is defined by a prejudice, argues Johnson. The prejudice is that all phenomenon can ultimately be explained in terms of purely natural causes, which is to say unintelligent, non-teleological, as a philosopher might put it, causes. Well, I think it's easy enough to find quotes from atheists who kind of validate that analysis, in in a sense, uh, in which they seem to exhibit that kind of approach to science, at least. So whether or not Johnson's analysis is right across the board, there do at least seem to be some people who do kind of take the approach that he's criticising. Richard Lewontin, for example... Uh, He says, uh, it's not that the methods of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation of the world, but on the contrary, that we are forced by our adherence to material causes to create a set of concepts that produce material explanations, no matter how counterintuitive, 
no matter how mystifying. Uh, moreover, moreover, says Lewontin, that materialism is absolute, for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. Now, actually, at this point, I want to add, add the caveat that I think uh, intelligent design theory can be framed in such a way that it doesn't allow a, d- a divine foot in the door. Uh, what the real debate there is, is about whether or not you allow an intelligent foot in the door. And then it's an entirely separate topic to discuss what is the metaphysical nature of that intelligence. Uh, Michael Roos, a philosopher of science from America, gave a fascinating talk uh, in 1993 uh, called The New Anti-Evolutionism. It was meant to be a response uh, uh, to uh, the sort of thinking being put forward by Johnson and so on. And uh, I'm sorry that the writing here is so small and I've got lots of ellipses in it, but I encourage you to track down uh, Ruse's paper. It's freely available online. Uh, It's called Non-Literalist Anti-Evolution in some places. Uh, It was a talk at the AAAS Symposium in 1993 in Boston. Uh, Let me get this in focus here. Uh, This is Ruse talking. Johnson, Philip Johnson, is arguing that the kind of position of a, a person like myself an evolutionist, is metaphysically based at some level, just as much as the kind of position of some creationist. I must confess, I've been coming to this kind of position myself. I was inclined to say creationism is not science, and of course he's using creationism here to cover both uh, everything from young earth creationism through to an intelligent design theory that has absolutely nothing to do with theological concerns. Uh, uh, of some creationists, uh, he's been coming to this position himself. I'm inclined to say, uh, I was inclined to say, creationism is not science, and evolution is. And that's the end of it. Now, I'm inclined to think we should recognise that the science side has certain metaphysical assumptions built into doing science. Certainly, I think that philosophers like myself have been much more sensitised to these things by trends in the philosophy of science. So, However we're going to deal with creationism, or new creationism, i.e. intelligent design theory, we should also look at evolution and science in particular, biology, generally philosophically, I think, uh, a lot more critically. And it seems to me, and I put this in italics because I think this is a particularly important bit, it seems to me very clear that at some basic level, evolution as a scientific theory makes a commitment to a kind of naturalism. Namely, that at some level one's going to exclude miracles and these sorts of things, come what may. I think that evolutionary theory certainly seems to be the most uh, reasonable position once one has taken a naturalistic position. So I'm not coming here and saying, uh, give up evolution or anything like that. Uh, But I am coming here and saying... I think that philosophically that one should be sensitive to what I think history shows, namely that evolution akin to religion involves making certain a priori or metaphysical assumptions which at some level cannot be proven empirically. And I think that the way to deal with creationism, but the way to deal with evolution also, is not to deny these facts, but to recognise them and to see where we can go and move on from there fascinating speech. Uh, Ruiz, still in that speech, assumed that science should be defined, uh, quote, so it excludes miracles and these sorts of things. 
but he did explicitly concede Johnson's point about metaphysical assumptions which cannot be proven empirically playing a significant role in one's assessment of evolutionary theory. Bradley Monton, uh, atheist philosopher of science from America again, um, highly recommend getting a hold of his book, Seeking God in Science, An Atheist Defends Intelligent Design. Uh, although, again, it's a, a very qualified uh, acceptance. Uh, Monton, talking about this sort of philosophy of science issue that Ruse kicked off there, says that if science really is permanently committed to methodological naturalism, that is not a belief that naturalism is actually true, but that science should be done uh, as if it were, in a sense. Uh, it follows that the aim of science is not generating true theories. Instead, the aim of science would be something like generating the best theories that can be formulated subject to the restriction that the theories are naturalistic. Science is better off without being shackled by methodological naturalism. Uh, he talks about the Judge Jones uh, ruling in the Dover, Pennsylvania case uh, where a school board, school board of creationists tried to uh, jimmy uh, intelligent design theory mention, at least, into the classroom as kind of their next best preference to having proper creationism in there. Um, and that's all, all bound up with various uh, legal issues, some of which are specific to America and the Constitution and everything, of course. But analysing uh, Judge Jones's ruling, Bradley Monton says this, that Judge Jones, quote, seems aware of the fact that his demarcation criteria, that is, his attempt to kind of draw uh, a rule that distinguishes what is, counts as science from what's not science, his demarcation criteria entail that the aim of science is not truth. He writes that, and this is a quote within this quote from Judge Jones, while ID arguments may be true, a proposition on which the court takes no position, ID is not science. But if science is not a pursuit of truth, says Monton, science has the potential to be marginalised as an irrelevant social practice. The kind of point I was making about well, which department of the university are you going to cipher your funds to then? Or uh, new atheist Victor J. Stenger, uh, both a scientist and a philosopher of science, uh, he notes in his book The New Atheism, I agree with Monton, an avowed atheist, incidentally, that intelligent design is science. Richard Dawkins in The God Delusion. Uh, and again, I want to add this caveat about um, these atheists uh, keep saying things like, uh, it, it would be scientific to mention God in science. Um, that is a proposal um, particularly defended by an American Christian philosopher called Alvin Plantinger, a proposal called Theistic Science. Um, I happen to agree with that, but I think there's a conflation going on in the debate at the moment between a Plantingan type of theistic science and intelligent design theory, uh, which can be formulated such that it doesn't mention God, but does mention intelligence. Um, it's a bit like saying um, we couldn't do research on uh, people's uh, mentality um, unless we first settled the issue of whether or not mind-body dualism was true. Um, no, I think that's a, a, a separate issue that, uh, to that. Uh, 
So Dawkins, God's existence or non-existence is a scientific fact about the universe, discoverable in principle, if not in practice. The presence or absence, and here I'm, I'm happier with the way he phrases it here, the presence or absence of a creative superintelligence is unequivocally, uh, unequivocally a scientific question, even if it's not in practice or not yet a decided one. So there he's even, even saying it's not decided for or against. You know, that's, that's quite uh, a kind of stunning kind of con- concession uh, there, I think. Thomas Nagel, who I had a quote from right at the beginning, I'm going to finish by concentrating particularly on a, a fascinating paper from Nagel. Uh, he's an American atheist philosopher, uh, particularly known for work in philosophy of science and also some stuff in jurisprudence. A paper of his called Public Ed- Education and Intelligent Design, published in Philosophy and Public Affairs in uh, spring 2008. Uh, I got some fairly deep quotes here, so I might have to uh, just pick and highlight what I'm going to do. For example, in this paper, Nagel argues that uh, Darwinism and ID are methodologically equivalent sciences. Either both of them are science or neither of them is, argues Nagel. Um, And he talks quite at length in this paper about uh, a book by a design theorist, Michael Behe, Behe's sequel uh, to the boy, uh, to um, Darwin's Black Box, uh, a book called The Edge of Evolution. And uh, Nagel uh, gives this personal comment. He says, My own situation is that of an atheist who, in spite of being an avid consumer of popular science, has for a long time been sceptical of the claims of traditional evolutionary theory to be the whole story about the history of life. Sophisticated members of the contemporary culture have been so thoroughly indoctrinated that they easily lose sight of the fact that evolutionary reductionism defies common sense. Uh, A theory that defies common sense can be true. But doubts about its truth should be suppressed only in the face of exceptionally strong evidence to the contrary. Here Nagel seems to be admitting that the burden of proof lies with those who want to say something like I know the world looks like it's the product of actual design, but it's not really, and here's how you can know that. Uh, It's an admission uh, made by Richard Dawkins in some of his work as well. Of course, Dawkins thinks that he can meet that burden of proof. Nagel says he's sceptical, at least about evolutionary theory being something that can meet that burden of proof. Let's just go to the end here, talking about the edge of evolution, summarising the argument and some of the public uh, brouhaha that has been backwards and forwards over the argument. He comes down to the bottom here and he says um, that he believes, uh, Behe believes, that random mutation uh, is not sufficient to explain the range of variation on which natural selection must have acted to yield the history of life, in toto, that is. Uh, This seems on the face of it to be a scientific claim, says Nagel, about which the evidence, uh, about what the evidence suggests, and one that is not self-evidently absurd. I cannot evaluate it. It's not his professional field, the actual data. I merely wish to stress it's important for the current debate. And in the paper you'll see that he's quite frustrated with some of the sort of hand-waving and sort of red herring responses that go on to this. And he'd really like a sort of meteor discussion, uh, something that Bradley Monton is wanting to discourage as well. Uh, encourage, I mean, as well. Uh, 
Nagel even affirms that there is no empirical refutation of idea as far as he can make out. Uh, no empirical refutation has ever been offered, he says, let alone established. What have been offered instead are unnecessarily speculative proposals about how the problem posed by Behe might be handled by evolutionary theory. Uh, declarations that no hypothesis involving divine intervention counts as science and assurances that evolutionary theory is not inconsistent with the existence of God. Now, I completely agree with his third uh, point there, uh, by the way. Uh, Nagel's design argument. Just by quoting Nagel, and I'll tell you why he draws back from actually giving this argument, but it is, if you like, an argument that I think, if he were being more consistent, he would have followed through on in this paper. First of all, Nagel says, uh, a theory that defies common sense can be true, but doubts about its truth should be suppressed only in the face of exceptionally strong evidence. He's endorsing what the Oxford philosopher Richard Swinburne calls the principle of credulity, that you should take things to be the way they appear to be to you, until such time as you've got sufficient evidence, counter-evidence, sufficient evidence not to take things being that way. And uh, Swinburne says, look, what would happen if you followed the, tried to not follow that rule? Uh, you'd never be able to really believe hardly anything at all, uh, because you'd always be saying, well, I'm sceptical about believing this until you give me some evidence. And I give you some evidence, and then you say, that's, that's lovely, but... How can I really believe that that evidence is real and that it genuinely supports this conclusion and you need to support all of the premises in your argument and I'd have to give you more arguments for those premises and then he'd be sceptical about them because he must never believe anything until he's got any proof. And now we've, we've so they get a sort of exponential increase in the problem of justification if we don't at least sometimes follow the rule that we should uh, start arguments from things that seem to be the case to us and go from there. And they might be revisable in the light of further evidence, but it's about who has the burden of proof. So he endorses the principle of credulity. And secondly, he says uh, that he is sceptical of the claims of traditional evolutionary theory. He's sceptical of the kind of claim made by Dawkins uh, in, say, The Blind Watchmaker, where he says, you know, uh, it used to be reasonable to believe that the world was designed. Um, that was a, a, the best explanation on offer and so on and so forth. Fit the facts fairly well. Things sure, uh, things sure look that way. But then along came Charles Darwin. Thirdly, uh, I think that surely this combination of, of these two uh, statements from Nagel would leave him endorsing common sense. If he says common sense says it's designed until and unless we've got a better alternative explanation. doesn't seem to me that there is a better alternative explanation. What follows from that? That at least that we should assume that the world is designed until further information might come in that might possibly undermine it. Uh, he says the evidence for evolution is supposed to be evidence for the absence of purpose in the causation of the development of life forms on this planet. It displaces design by proposing an alternative. But if these are alternatives and you get rid of one, what are you left with? So here's why I think Thomas Nagel should embrace ID, although he doesn't. He is at best agnostic about it. 
Thomas Nagel makes this reflection. I do not regard divine intervention as a possibility, even though I have no other candidates. That is, to parse this out, tease this out a little bit, I think Nagel's saying that since A, he has no candidate for the role of designer besides divinity, and B, he regards divine design as impossible, he concludes that he can't embrace ID. Regarding A, let's say this, that design inferences don't depend upon a prior belief in the existence of actual designer candidates. Rather, they depend upon the belief that it is possible that a designer candidate might exist. And indeed, Nagel believes that. He says in his paper, quote, ID requires only that design be admitted as a possibility. Moreover, that assumption, this assumption, is bound up in Nagel's recognition that the design uh, inference, as it were, carries the presumption of truth. How can something carry the presumption of being true if it's not at least possibly true? Regarding B, Nagel admits, I recognise that this discardation of the the God hypothesis, the design hypothesis by by, uh, deduction from that, I recognise that this is because of an aspect of my overall worldview that does not rest on empirical grounds or any other kind of rational grounds. Hello? This unwarranted, by his own admission, unwarranted presupposition adversely affects Nagel's assessment of ID. Uh, Quote from Nagel again, I do not think the existence of God can be disproved. So someone who can offer serious scientific reasons to doubt the adequacy of the theory of evolution, which he doubts, and who believes in God uh, in the same immediate way in which I believe that there is no God, can quite reasonably conclude that the hypothesis of design should be taken seriously. But he's not going to go that route because he starts from somewhere else, although he starts from somewhere else with no reason that he can give you for doing so. Uh, This ties up uh, for me with a comment that Nagel makes uh, in a previous book of his, uh, The Last Word, uh, from 1997. It's uh, uh, a really good book. I really uh, like this book, The Last Word. It's an attack on subjectivism in lots of different areas. He defends objectivity of morality and objectivity of knowing, knowing about the truth and so on. But at the end, he passes some comments where he says this kind of um, objective, uh, truth-accessible world with moral values and so on, it's kind of getting a bit, a bit uncomfortable for me as an atheist. Although I want to defend all these things, it seems to have certain implications that people kind of get a bit uncomfortable about sometimes, including me. He says, I want atheism to be true. And I'm made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious. Um, it isn't that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. Uh, It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want a universe like that. My guess is that this cosmic authority problem is not a rare condition, 
and that it is responsible for much of the scientism and reductionism of our time. Tie that comment up uh, with Richard Lewontin's comment about we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. So, uh, rejecting intelligent design theory because one doesn't believe in God, I think that's a bit like rejecting a design inference from crop circles. You know about crop circles? We had a particular rash of these in the 1980s in the UK. Uh, Because one doesn't believe in aliens. It's like saying, well, those crop circles, they, they sure look designed, don't they? And I haven't really got a better alternative explanation to design, um, but I don't believe in aliens. I don't have any reasons for not believing in aliens, but I don't believe in aliens. Therefore, those crop circles are not the product of design. I'm sure you can see a few holes in that kind of argument. Uh, To take a design inference seriously, one need only regard the existence of a designer capable of of doing that design per se, not necessarily God, as a possibility. Something Nagel at least implicitly admits, and indeed I think explicitly states. Nagel's recognition that the design hypothesis involves a presumption of truth includes the recognition that the existence of a designer per se is a possibility. And his reticence about ID, his agnosticism about it by the end of his paper, rests upon a failure to recognise that the design hypothesis provides the embarkation point rather than the terminus to debate about the nature of the designer. In that point, I agree very much with the Scottish sceptical philosopher David Hume, who, talking about the design argument in natural theology, said, look, you must be very careful not to try and get more out of the conclusion of a design argument than your premises will support. So a design argument in natural theology, it's very difficult to make that say anything to you about the... um, Uh, the moral nature of the designer. Uh, It might point to the fact that the designer must be intelligent and know a lot, but it can't establish that the designer is omniscient and knows everything. Um, It must establish that the designer existed at the point at which the design was actualised. But does it prove that the designer continues to exist now? Those are all quite good points to make against uh, design arguments of any stripe Um, and I think ID uh, is very comfortable uh, with that getting to the point of saying there is uh, some reliable criteria for spotting when something is the product of design and a number of atheist philosophers and scientists both implicitly and explicitly agree with that and in my first paper that I mentioned I also go on to look at um, theistic thinkers outside of the intelligent design movement Uh, who also agree with that. Um, That uh, there is some empirical evidence in the fabric of nature that passes through that test. That's not something that I'm looking at. It's not really something that I, as a philosopher, am uh, competent in. That's not my field. But if there is something that goes through that test, of course that leads logically to the conclusion that there is genuine design in nature. What is the nature of that designer then becomes a live 
question for you. But since there's a whole panoply of different potential designer candidates, you know, Plato's Demiurge, uh, uh, aliens from Alpha Centauri, time-traveling uh, scientists from the future, uh, angels, uh, demons, uh, Zeus, uh, who knows? What can, we, what can we tell, what can't we know? Do you have to bring in arguments from other areas of study, from, from natural philosophy? might be able to build on this kind of argument, but you have to build on them. Once you get to the conclusion, therefore there is genuine design, therefore there must be an actual designer, to leap to the conclusion, and that's God, is obviously a, a, a gap argument. There's a gap literally in the argument. There's a whole missing premise here to the fact that, oh, and by the way, the best explanation of that designer, the best designer candidate, has this specific nature, Therefore, that specific designer candidate is the one that we should think exists. Um, and we mustn't uh, sort of uh, brush out, conflate, try and contract the argument so that it does too much all in one go, as Hume very sensibly pointed out. Uh, so there, uh, on a different criteria, uh, to simply the principle of credulity, I think should lead uh, Nagel, if he was uh, consistent rather than inconsistent in what he said, to embrace the idea that there is genuine design in nature and some kind of designer behind it. Thank you very much for sticking with that and paying attention. And uh, we do have uh, sort of 20 minutes of space for questions. Um, I know you're taking time out of your lunch to do this, so if you need to go and uh, visit the loos again or get some water... Um, very uh, happy, but if you want to stay and uh, pepper me with some questions and objections and things, I'm very happy for that as well. I'll uh, have to try and remember to repeat the question uh, into uh, these uh, various microphones that I'm wearing for different uh, recording purposes. Okay? Yes, sir. I have a question. Can, can we really build an argument that uh, designer is a moral agent uh, from inference from facts. Like, for example, uh, according to the theory of evolution, women should breed children till they die. But actually we see very complex mechanism of uh, losing ability of giving birth to children more or less 20 years before uh, last child can, can get uh, oh, you know that uh, the last baby of a, a little lady uh, probably will, will get uh, old enough to be mature before she dies. It shows mercy uh, of the creator. The same is with the anomaly of water that is most dense with 4 degrees of centigrade which enables fish to survive winter. So can't we argue, argue that there are some evidence of design which uh, point at moral character design? Okay, thank you. Uh, the question here is, can't we mount some kind of design argument that has a conclusion that does mention something about the moral nature of the hypothesized designer? Uh, and the questioner mentions uh, things like um, uh, women stop childbearing uh, earlier than they need to as far as he can see in evolutionary terms and uh, isn't that a good thing uh, kind of and that uh, uh, fish uh, can survive being frozen in water and isn't that a, a good thing and so on I think uh, let me try and make two separate responses uh, to that on the one hand and again I'm going to agree with David Hume here um, 
when Hume says you can't get uh, to an ought from an is. It's very difficult to get to a moral fact from a non-moral fact. Um, I, I think that holds true. And what you're really doing in your argument there is combining an empirical observation with a moral judgment with a moral judgment that says and, and that's a, a good thing and, and that moral judgment is being applied to something that's known empirically but the moral judgment isn't something that's known, known empirically and so you're no longer simply giving a, a design argument an empirical inference using scientific criteria you're bringing in uh, moral uh, aspect, moral judgment. So what you're, I think, really verging towards there is you're getting into the field of the moral argument, perhaps fruitfully. Um, but also, if you're going to say things like, look at X, Y, and Z, here's a moral judgment that those are positive things in reality, doesn't that say something about the moral nature of the designer? Well, equally, uh, people are going to say, well, what about the pain of childbirth? You know, what about the fact that we get backache because we evolved in a certain way or so on? Doesn't that show that the designer hates us? And, you know, um, couldn't you make uh, inferences in the other direction by looking at other bits of data? So what you might be accused of there is kind of data picking, as it were, and you might be able to accuse, accuse the opposition of data picking their examples uh, and say, look guys, maybe, maybe uh, empirical and scientific stuff is not the area, really, under which to have this discussion about the metaphysically moral nature of the designer I'd rather go through uh, a route in natural theology of combining the conclusion of various different arguments, build upon a design argument, maybe metaphysically to, to make a, a natural theology argument combine that with a moral argument and it's the moral argument that will show that um, uh, there is a, a wholly good being and of course by Occam's razor it's much simpler to believe that there's a wholly good being who's the source of the moral law and so on uh, who also is the source of design than to believe that there's one moral being, one designing being, one uh, cosmologically uh, sustaining being, and so on. Do, do you want to make any response back to that? Or? Yeah? Okay, marvellous. Yes, sir. In all the arguments of the atheists against intelligent design believe in a priori arguments in order to sustain their conclusions. Uh, the question, uh, let me phrase this and check with you that I've got, that I've got it right. Um, he's, uh, the gentleman is asking, do all atheists who object to intelligent design found their objection in a priori judgments, judgments that aren't supported by empirical evidence? Is that, I've got it, yeah. Um, I don't think so, because for example I quoted uh, Massimo Pigliucci there, who's uh, an atheist, a naturalist, biologist and philosopher of science. And uh, he was uh, saying positive things about irreducible complexity, um, that it's a good criteria of design detection, that if something has that, then it's, it's probably designed. He just doesn't think there is anything in the natural world that has that quality. Um, now, you, know, you may or may not think he's wrong or, or right about that, but there he's making an a posteriori claim, which is the basis of his, his objection. Um, or at least he, he uh, seems to be, and I think um, until given further evidence, the principle of charity would ask us to interpret him that way. Um, it can be 
that we have, uh, for example, in the case of Richard Dawkins, in books like Climbing Mount Improbable, I think it is, he makes what can appear to be an a posteriori evidence-based argument, but that actually um, that uh, whole argument, the data set that he'll accept and so on, is shaped by his a priori commitments, his metaphysical commitments, um, and he'll end up sort of arguing in a circle and saying, you know, it was reasonable to believe in God before we had Darwin, but now Darwin has explained everything, and so it's no longer reasonable to follow this design argument. And I know that Darwinism can, can explain everything, even though it hasn't actually explained everything now. I know that it, it will explain everything, of course. Um, I can't give you the details of how everything kind of moved up what he calls Mount Improbable, but we know that those gradual pathways that can be taken by, by Darwinian evolution must exist. Why? Uh, because the only plausible alternative would be to say that some kind of designer did it. Uh, and we know that that's rubbish, of course, because we've got this better, simpler explanation, which is that evolution did it all. And we know that evolution must be able to do it, even though I can't give you all the details of how it happened, because the only alternative is to say that a designer did it. And he kind of mounts this circular argument. Um, so you do need to look very carefully at the structure of the argument, but I, I certainly wouldn't uh, want to just put out the, the bold claim there that all objection to intelligent design theory rests um, only or even primarily on a priori grounds. So you keep on saying either designer or evolution when the fact is the vast majority of Christians who are scientists reject intelligent design and accept design using the process of evolution. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Simon uh, very helpfully uh, states that, of course, uh, a large number of Christians both believe in evolution and a designer and in God. Certainly, all Christians believe in what I would call the doctrine of creation, and Christians disagree over different models of, more specifically, how was that creation brought about. And there's an in-house debate going on there. And, and I want to flag up again what, what I noted in my talk when I agreed with Thomas Nagel, that there is no contradiction between belief in God and belief in evolution, as far as I can see. Indeed, from my viewpoint, there's no contradiction between uh, uh, Christian belief uh, and belief in evolution, no, no theological motivation behind uh, my position. Um, and you know, I used to be a theistic evolutionist, and I moved into the intelligent design camp uh, uh, for reasons having nothing to do with anything about my interpretation of Genesis or, or what, what have you. Um, so I certainly think they are compatible uh, theories, but just because two things are, are compatible, are coherent together, doesn't mean that both of them are true. It's still a further question uh, as to uh, what is true uh, in, in that story that you're, that you're telling. Um, and it's important to, to, to uh, notice some of, the, some of the, the terminology kind of gets uh, baggage with it. Um, particularly from from US, particularly when you're reading authors like Johnson and so on, constantly does make a conflation, I think, between Darwinism and naturalistic philosophy. Um, you can, of course, of course, not be a naturalist and do uh, science on a uh, uh, methodologically naturalistic basis. You, you can do that. I, I, I think methodological naturalism, as a rule, uh, is a, is a bad one, but I think it's possible to do science on that basis. Of course, it is. Um, 
And it's even uh, possible to think that um, neither naturalism is true, that, uh, nor is um, um, methodological naturalism, and yet to think that evolution was the best theory. Um, you, could, you could have that position. Uh, there's a whole lot of kind of nuances of position here. Especially when you say, you know, I believe in, in, in uh, design and in evolution. Uh, in the same area, because um, you could just be saying, for example, that I believe God designed the fine-tuning of the universe, set up a, 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 a system that on its own steam, as it were, would uh, produce certain results, maybe ones that he foresaw or uh, by his middle knowledge knew would come about even though he didn't directly cause it to come about. Or maybe you might think that God superintended supernaturally the progress of evolution is at hand to ensure that at least certain outcomes like uh, human beings came about. Um, so there's, there's a number of views even within what we uh, call the theistic evolution camp that need to be kind of disambiguated from each, each other. But someone in the theistic evolution camp who says, yes, I believe God supernaturally superintended this process of evolution um, would say, but you can't empirically detect that. You can't know that from looking at evolution. That's something I know from my theology or from philosophical argumentation. It's like looking at the string of, of Scrabble letters, uh, that, the first string that I showed you, and I remember I said, um, you don't have to invoke design to explain that string of letters. Uh, Specify complexity as a design detection criteria applied to that string of letters wouldn't say it was designed. But it might have been designed. I might have very carefully arranged that sequence of, of letters. It's just that you can't tell that I did that just from looking at the letters. You could tell that I did that if you'd seen me do it or if I told you I revealed it to you. But the question is, can you tell it from looking at the actual um, uh, object before you, a, a sequence of events before you and so on. An ID makes the claim that you can tell that there was actual design by looking at the, the events, the object before you in nature. Uh, and that's where um, you get a, a, a sort of divide uh, distinction between sort of what you might think of as one end of theistic evolution and the other end of uh, intelligent design theory in this spectrum of views. Uh, that Christians hold. Um, so, yes, there's, there's a lot of um, ambiguity that goes on in the field and a lot of kind of wanting to put in place careful categories and to ask people, well, what do you mean by theistic evolution? Because I can think of at least two or three or four things that, that you could believe uh, about that. Let's talk about disambiguating um, those and so on. Yeah. Um. Okay, can, uh, given that, you know, conceding that Christians can accept evolution and, and incorporate that into their worldview, uh, how, do you, how would you respond to the, um, the proposition like that Alvin Plantinga position Plantinga takes in uh, Orton Proper Function that naturalism probably more or less entails something like evolution? So, in other words, yeah. if you're committed to naturalism, you're probably going to more or less necessarily be committed to evidence or something very much like it, and so therefore the um, sort of the religious uh, bias might be coming from that side, and a lot of the you know kind of virulence of hmm. evolutionist camp might sort of be uh, motivated by that. Yeah. 
Okay, the, the, the question, uh, question of reference is Alvin Plantinga's uh, work in this area, uh, where he says that if you're a naturalist, a metaphysical naturalist, you're basically by implication committed to at least some kind of evolutionary view, some kind of view whereon the, uh, the thing, uh, things of nature in and of themselves, unaided, are capable of causing everything that we see around us. Um, I certainly agree with that, there is an implication, I think, from naturalism to believing in some kind of evolutionary theory. And I had various quotes that, that made the same point. The reverse is not true, of course. Being committed to evolution as a theory does not mean being uh, committed to metaphysical naturalism. It doesn't even mean being committed to methodological naturalism as a sort of theoretical rule of a certain discipline. Um, so there's an implication in one direction, but not... Uh, in the in the other direction, we've got uh, ten minutes to go, but we can take a question. When you say evolution. I mean, maybe you. I came a little late. Maybe you defined the term because I think there's uh, at least four layers: uh, microevolution, macroevolution. Yeah. I think that's probably what you mean. But then Darwin himself, I think, said that that if if, if this takes some kind of miracles or some kind of intervention, then that, that is not my theory. So, so it excludes uh, intelligent input, I would say, in, 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 the, hmm. okay. in, the, in the most common version. And then also the belief that life didn't start without uh, intelligent input. All these four layers hmm. is actually evolutionary hmm. theory. Hmm. Popularized or in our culture, I would say. Any comments on on how to define it? Because I think that's very important. Uh, I I totally agree. Um, The gentleman makes a very uh, excellent point that I failed to um, define what I was meaning by evolution at the beginning of the talk. Um, uh, and um, because I skipped over some of the quotes from Nagel as well, I think that made it a little more vague what I was, uh, what we were concentrating on. And he points out that there are a number of separable beliefs that together constitute what's sometimes called evolution. Um, Belief in uh, origin of of life from non-life by purely uh, material means, uh, something something called chemical evolution. Although, strictly speaking, of course, um, if you mean uh, evolution uh, by variation of an organism and natural selection, uh, you can't get that kind of evolution even going before you have the arrival of something capable of evolving. And so ev- evolution in the second sense has no relevance to explaining chemical evolution. So you have chemical evolution, you'd have the theory of common ancestry, and indeed the theory of universal common ancestry, and one might believe in, in uh, the, 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 the former without believing in the latter, although the latter implies the former. And then you have a sort of a Darwin-type theory of uh, a mechanism by which the variety of life uh, described within the, the tree of life kind of image within the common ancestry came about. What is the causal process that produced this uh, radiation of forms and so on? Uh, uh, mutation, uh, principally natural selection, uh, various other uh, mechanisms as well. So there are a number of separable issues. And for example, like Michael uh, Behe, Behe uh, believes in common ancestry. What he questions is the sufficiency of uh, the uh, mutation selection 
kind of engine to be an adequate cause for everything that we see in common ancestry. Uh, so he's not questioning common ancestry, and he's not questioning that uh, variation and selection cause some things. He's only questioning that it causes everything. Um, and so I thank you very much for the, for the clarification uh, to put in there uh, of, of being very careful again about definitions, about the different elements to the theory that, that uh, sometimes go together and sometimes don't go together at all, and you can question one part of it without that implying that you're questioning all of it uh, by any means. There was a, a second thing that you mentioned, sir, uh, and that was um, saying that Charles Darwin uh, defined his theory uh, so as to exclude anything miraculous or supernatural and said he wasn't you know, interested in uh, a theory that involved that kind of causation and if it was, that wasn't his theory. Um, here I think it's kind of terminological. It's kind of, well, it may not be his theory of evolution. Uh, fine, let's call it someone else's theory of, of, of evolution. Um, this really just comes down to what we're going to define our, our terms as, as meaning. Um, people are not, of course, hidebound to think in the same way as the originator of a particular line of thought, um, himself thought. Uh, yes, so what's our time doing? We've got five minutes, Grant. Um, presumably different kinds of designers would act in different ways so we would expect Zeus <coughs> Zeus to do a certain kind of thing and aliens to do some kind of thing and the God of the Bible to do another kind of thing hmm. and science would be able to distinguish between those different models of a designer yeah. so I'm wondering why we as Christians should rather than seek scientific, scientific evidence for the God of the Bible bend over backwards to avoid that and search for some kind of amorphous design Hmm. Okay. Um, the suggestion is put forward that uh, presumably different kinds of designers work in different ways uh, and that at least on occasion those different ways of acting could be empirically detectable uh, and that this might mean that we could mount an argument specifically for the God of the Bible uh, uh, being the one that's real, the designer that's real, given that we um, have some propositions saying how we would expect him to act and that those propositions uh, we uh, have warrant for, and that we have evidence that uh, comports with that theory and not with other designer candidates. Um, that's an excellent suggestion. Uh, that's a, a good uh, research uh, program, I think. You might characterise it as a research program in theistic science, um, back to Plantinga and so on, and I said I have you know, no problem with that at all, let a thousand roses bloom and, and so on. Why, you ask, why should we kind of bend over backwards to do anything other than try and, and, and go uh, for, the, for, the, for the whole um, FA Cup in one go, as it were? Um, because I think it's, it's useful to take a number of different approaches, and you certainly can take these different approaches, so why uh, limit yourself to only exploring one avenue? Um, particularly if that particular avenue didn't uh, work out or it just uh, worked out that there were a, a couple of hypotheses that had equal warrant from taking that avenue maybe. Um, who knows? It, you can't kind of prejudge the results that you're going to get. Um, uh, if you're a Christian you'll believe that the results won't, wouldn't disconfirm um, uh, sufficiently uh, Christian belief in order to make it unwarranted but you wouldn't necessarily presume a priori beforehand that it would uh, radically warrant Christianity over, say, Islam or Judaism uh, or, or something. 
Um, so it might be good to take other avenues for that reason. Um, also, I think one of the good things about science is that it is a communal activity. And it's a communal activity in which people of different religious and worldview philosophical perspectives can participate. And so that's why one of the reasons why I'm, I'm, I'm quite keen to make this distinction between theistic science and ID as involving the, the, premise, the, the presupposition that it's possible that intelligence is involved. And if we, we concentrate on the question of, is intelligence involved in ID? And then leave the question, what is the nature of that intelligence to other uh, areas of study because then people with different worldviews can still collaborate in doing ID research whilst disagreeing about the nature of the designer. Um, that's a kind of pragmatic uh, argument, if you like, a values-based argument for defining uh, uh, that research program in a certain way. But I think it is uh, a pretty decent uh, reason for carrying on that kind of research as well as more specifically kind of Christian presupposition-based research. Marvellous. Okay, if, if there are no more, I think we need to, to leave some time for uh, filling out of uh, evaluation questionnaires and so on. Thank you very much for your questions and your attention.